John chapter 21, the last two verses of the gospel, verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the word world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. We've been studying the Gospel of John. I checked it out for almost exactly a year. We started last October, October 1st. And so we've been looking at some 50 hours in John's writings. And we've got to come to the conclusion that John so desires, because if you recall at the beginning, and I pointed it out many times, John is writing an apologetic. He's given a reason for the hope that resides within him. He states his thesis right at the beginning as far as Jesus Christ and the deity of Christ. And then he spends the remaining of the gospel proving that thesis, proving that Jesus Christ is God. And now we come finally to his conclusion. And so the Apostle John, his intent is is that you would receive the witnesses that were presented here of certain truths about Jesus Christ, and then you would come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God, the promised Messiah is the Son of God, and then realize the salvation that is offered in his name. Again, verse 24 says, This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. John, a lot of times, refers to himself in the third party. Now, it's very possible that this gospel was sent to an area, to a church, whatever, and it's very possible that verse 24 was inserted by a group or elders of the church that would not discount it from being um, divinely inspired. But verse 24 seems to be even more of a stretch as far as being written third party. It says, this is the disciple, again, third party, that would be John, who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So it very well could be a known minister in the area, whoever, and he's just lending towards the truthfulness of this being written by John and the truthfulness of what John has written here. Now, it's very possible that John could have written verse 24 himself as well, because again, he does write in the third party. But John, John ministered in Jerusalem. He ministered in Asia Minor. In Patmos is where he wrote the book of Revelation. He ministered in Ephesus. It's more than likely where he wrote the Gospels and the Epistles. And so the idea, the idea, what we've seen throughout the gospel is the necessity to believe, but not just believe to believe. He's not asking you for blind faith. He's examining the facts and he's presenting the witnesses. Now we're going to close out this gospel looking at three main witnesses. We're going to focus upon the second one. Now he started out right away with John the Baptist. John the Baptist and his witness. Now remember who John the Baptist is. John the Baptist, or was, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament type of prophets proclaiming the coming Messiah, but he also was right there at the transition of the first of the New Testament witness. And so we had the Old Testament prophet 
prophesying the coming Messiah, and now we have the New Testament witness speaking of Messiah who has come. And so John the Baptist spoke of Messiah coming, and then behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and then he lent testimony towards who Jesus is. In John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, John says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. And again, we know that light to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is important because, again, John, who he represents, this witness, who this witness represents, is basically the prophets of the Old Testament. Now, I'm not just saying look at Elijah or Elisha or any of the other prophets. Everybody who wrote a book of the Bible, in essence, is a prophet. They're delivering the word of God to people. And so what we have to basically look at is the witness of the Old Testament and how Jesus Christ fulfilled the Old Testament. So here's where we land on the second witness, and we'll spend the greater majority of tonight looking at this second witness. This witness, greater witness than even John the Baptist, this is the witness of all witnesses. This is the witness of the miracles of the Lord. And that's what we're going to review. We're going to review the seven miracles that are listed in the book of John and the point that John was trying to get across. And so my idea for tonight is, is that, do you remember the fourth study that we did in the Gospel of John? Does anybody? Some of you were here. You don't remember the fourth study? Neither do I. And, and we've, done prob- we've done over 50 of them, and I, I can't tell you the details of all without looking at the scriptures and trying to remember everything was said. But what I want to leave you with was at least these last seven miracles that would lend back and would jar our memories to some of the things that were done and some of the things that were said. I know a lot of you, you're born-again believers, but it would be that which would strengthen us and shore up our faith and prepare us for every good work. In John chapter 5, verse 36, it says, But I have a greater witness than John's, than John the Baptist. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Now, we see today people doing, supposedly doing miracles. But the problem with the miracles that they do, they use them to draw attention to themselves. Those are lying signs and wonders. If Jesus is not glorified through a miracle, then that miracle is not of the Lord. And so when the focus is upon any particular man or woman, and even if they do amazing things, the devil is able to do some pretty amazing things. And we're told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that there's going to be some really amazing things that come, but he's going to use them to deceive even the elect if possible. And so John has recorded for us seven miracles that point to Jesus Christ, not only as the promised Messiah, but also as the Son of God. And the purpose is for our belief and subsequent salvation. And so we're going to do some turning today. So first miracle, turn over to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. We see the turning of water into wine. Now... You've heard from some writings and traditions and all of miracles that Jesus had done as a kid. Uh, There's one 
story of him going to India and how he would heal animals and all of this stuff. Well, here we have in John chapter 2 that discounts anything that may have been said of a miracle that Christ performed before because this one tells us that this is the first. And so it's important that we're well-versed in the Word of God. So when we have garbage like that that comes up, we recognize garbage as garbage. We recognize it as something false. So chapter 2, verse 1, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does, that, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, that master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sits out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifest his glory, and his disciples believed in him. When... Um, when we were in Israel, we did take, we were coming back from the Jezreel Valley, and Nazareth is right there on the rim of the hills that, that border the Jezreel Valley. And so on the way back, we went through Nazareth. And uh, it's not really a place you get out and tour, it's kind of a place you pass through. But anyway, we did see that area. And on the way back to Galilee, the Sea of Galilee is where we were staying in our hotel, we passed through Cana. So Cana would be. I don't know, maybe a day at the most journey by foot. And so you can imagine a special occasion. It wouldn't be a big deal for people who lived in Nazareth to go to a wedding that was in Cana. And so what we see here is, is first of all, is in Mary's comment in verse 3. They have no wine. Now, wine in the scriptures is is a picture of joy. And we see that society that at the time of Christ, the society that Christ entered into, there was no joy. As we read through the gospel accounts, apart from Christ, we see no joy whatsoever. Matter of fact, we see a people who are being oppressed, and we see a people who are suffering, and we even see the repression that comes from organized religion. And so this observation, this observation is made at the wedding. And so we've got wine, and the wine was quickly drank. And why was the wine quickly drank at a wedding? Why would they run out? This would be this would be a uh, um, I was going to say insult, but this would be an embarrassment to the person who was putting on the wedding. Probably trying, well, as we see today, people probably trying to drown their sorrows, because again, there's no joy. And even here at this joyous event, there's just there's just nothing. Here's another couple that's getting married, but what does it really change? Here's people who are moving on in their lives, but really, what does it matter? There's a birth, there's life, and then worst of all, there's death, and there's no joy in any of it whatsoever. Mankind has no joy. There's no joy in the worst Jewish worship system. It's one sacrifice after another after another. And then as far as Israel is concerned, they're under Roman occupation. 
And we see the hardships that come from that. There's no joy. And then we see the people who are supposed to be the ones ministering and expressing the love of God, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and there's definitely no joy there. And so what we did when we studied this, we looked at the joy that we are to have in our Christian lives. What does it mean to have joy in your Christian life? Well, the first thing that you have to understand that joy is not an emotion. Emotions are based upon situations and circumstances. Now, I can have an infection in my mouth and have a tooth pulled as I did last Friday, and it was a hard thing, and there was a lot of suffering, and I can stand here for an hour and tell you, woe is me. But it still didn't change the fact of my salvation. still didn't change the fact of Christ with me. And again, when people go through hardship, we just did the prayer request, and how many issues of cancer were people dealing with? God's joy enters into the midst of those hardships that we have to deal with. And so it's not based upon situations or circumstances, but it is a characteristic of a Christian life. If you are a born-again believer and you're walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, it's just going to be an expression of your life. It's going to be what is produced. It's not going to be a continual happiness because there's going to be sadness, but there's going to be joy because you understand and you know that your sins have been dealt with. You know that your future is in the Lord, and you know that he has thoughts of peace and not evil toward you, even in the midst of all that goes on. Joy, joy, I, I don't have to manufacture it myself. Joy is God-given. Matter of fact, we see that it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. As I see joy in my life, I understand that comes about because the Holy Spirit dwells inside of me. Now, we can hinder the Holy Spirit, and we can grieve the Holy Spirit, and I really believe that we can suppress joy that is in our lives, but I really got to take time to, to, to truly recognize these things, these things that we talk about in the scriptures. Now, if these things are true, which, which they are, they ought to be expressed in my life. They ought to be expressed no matter who you are here tonight. They ought to be expressed in your life. And so if you are without joy, if you're without joy tonight, you need to ask yourself why. Matter of fact, more important than that, you need to ask God why do I not have joy? Where, what am I missing here in my relationship with you, Lord? Because those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, not going to always be happy, but you are going to have joy in your life. Joy then is a product of the gospel as a result of our salvation. And it's an integral part of our witness as we desire people to enter into a saving knowledge, the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, why would they if there's just, if we look like we just bit a lemon, if we're a bunch of Eeyores here, just kind of stoics, just enduring life, waiting for it to be over? We're to embrace life. We are to be joyful. We are to express what Christ has done and the, the, the absolute acknowledgement of that through our manner of life. Because you look at the world, what joy does the world have to offer? There, there's a lot of temporary things, but those are usually just kind of feel-good band-aids on a horrible situation. We've got that peace that surpasses understanding. Our joy, our joy should be very apparent to all. Second miracle that we studied that John recorded was the healing of the nobleman's son. If you'll turn over to John chapter 4, 
verse 46. Now, the idea here is, and what has been highlighted, and again, what we see throughout the Gospel of John, is the necessity to believe. Now, this man believed, but there was a progression to his belief. There's a couple different definitions of belief that exist here, a couple different Greek words that are used. It says, so Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea, excuse me, to Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son. He was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. You'll by no means believe the witness of what Christ is presenting to all of humanity. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lived. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. Now, the belief that exists here is mentioned here. He just believed that Jesus was able to do what he said. This is not a belief as far as a saving belief, but this is a belief that, okay, he's a healer. If he said he was going to do it, I'm just going to believe, and so he goes on his way. Verse 51, And as he was now going down, his servant met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives, and he himself believed in his whole household. Now, this is the next progression to belief. This is belief that brings us to salvation. Christ worked the miracle. Now he fully believed that Christ was able to work the miracle, but then when he understood the dynamic of the miracle and the magnitude of the miracle, he understood that just by the spoken word of this man, of Jesus Christ, what he was able to achieve. And once again, we get this picture, we get this example of Christ's power, not only over sickness, but over life and death how he has come, that through his word, those who are sick can and will be made better. And so we see that this young child that had absolutely no hope, where was his hope? His hope was in the words of God. The third miracle is the healing of the paralytic man. Turn over, well, look over, maybe you need to turn in your Bible, but to chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porches. And these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the movement of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. So this man was paralyzed, think of this, for 38 years. For 38 years, he was unable to care for himself. He needed somebody else to go wherever it is that he wanted to go, completely dependent and unable to do basically anything. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition for a long time, He said to him, Do you want to be made well? 
The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. This is a picture of a man in a desperate, helpless state, trying to find, apart from Christ, healing. Now, verse 4, when it says an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. There are quite a few commentators, and I kind of lean towards that, that this was more a tradition than a reality. Can you imagine God doing something as cruel as that? saying that this is the edge of the pool and the pool's there, and having a paralytic man and see the stirring of the water, but unable to even roll over to fall into the water in order to be healed. And so I really believe that this man is, and we see the faith here, but is doing whatever he can, but there's just not a lot that he's able to do. The conditions of verse 3 are considered to be unhealable. Look at verse 3 again. In these, now there was a great multitude of people there, of sick people, and they were the blind, they were the lame, and they were the paralyzed. And I can relate to this because at one time I was spiritually blinded to the things of the Lord. I was lame and I did not have a walk with the Lord and I was paralyzed and I was unable to do anything about my sinful condition. We all, apart from Christ, were as this um, paralyzed man was. Now keep in mind, again, we have the witness of the Old Testament. And here we see that just as, as importantly for John to prove that Jesus is the Son of God, it's also important to show that he is the promised Messiah because Jesus would have to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. Well, we have an Old Testament scripture here fulfilled. We saw it in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 1. It says, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice, <clears throat> and the blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellence of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. For the waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water, and the habitation of jackals where each lay. There shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And the idea, he's using this, this picture of this barren land. This barren land is a picture of Israel without their Messiah. But then Messiah enters in, and now there's living water that's flowing. There's healing that comes up comes to pass and that's exactly what we're seeing back here in the gospel of john is what is happening in these miracles now in revelation chapter 3 keeping in mind that john wrote revelation and obviously the gospel of john it says in verses uh, 16 through 17 so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot i will vomit you out of my mouth behold you say i am rich have become wealthy and have need of nothing 
and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And so there's the necessity for mankind to realize his condition. And so we have this paralytic man that had been given all of those years to recognize his condition. And what did it do? It all pointed towards that day. That day, well, it was probably a day like any other day. Back out to the Pool of Bethesda. I was there. I saw it in the temple area, and they had done some diggings, and they uncovered a lot of it. And it's a pretty big area, so a lot of people would be able to, to gather there. And this man was just placed there just like any other day. Only this day, something special was going to happen. had nothing to do with angels stirring water. It was all about that was the day that he met Jesus Christ. I want you to think back to the day of your salvation. Did you wake up in the morning and say, I need to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior today? Most of us had no clue. It was a day like any other day. We were like that paralyzed man, could do nothing for our condition, but doing the best we could with what we had. But then there was that one day, that day that set every other day apart. That was the day that you met Christ. And that was the day that Christ entered in and did that work. What's interesting, I can't imagine what a body would look like that was paralyzed for that long. The muscles had to be just completely useless. And so we see that this healing that Christ did was a complete and thorough healing from the inside out. Because whatever the Lord does is complete and it is definitely thorough. Also, one other thing, just notice in verse 8. Let me get back there. Jesus said to him, rise up, arise, take up your bed and walk. How did the Lord heal? He healed him the same way he healed you with his word. It was all about the spoken word of Christ that achieved this great miracle. <clears throat> Fourth miracle, go ahead and turn over to the next chapter, chapter 6, is the feeding of the 5,000. Verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And when Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples, now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. So there was probably a lot of people that were in town during that day. Then, verse 5, Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? And you look at that and you think, doesn't he know? He's wanting Philip to consider this. And really what we're looking at is, is the Lord's method of ministry. How the Lord desires to reach those, especially those who are curious or seeking after him. Now, a lot of those people we'll see later on in the chapter, when they don't get what they want, they walk with Jesus no more. But there's opportunity there. And there is going to be some saved there. And so we've got a problem here. We've, we've got all of these people, but even as uh, the, Jesus presents the problem, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But it says in verse 6, but this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's son, said to them, there is a lad who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Now, we're told in different areas that one of the solutions that were offered to the feeding of the 5,000, we've got all these people, what are we going to do, Jesus asked. 
And then one of his disciples said, send him away. Send him away. People who are seeking after Christ, sending them away is not an option. And so really what we have here is, is something that is very applicable. It's applicable to your personal life, doing the work of the Lord. But I really look at this as a strong verse for the church and, and what the church is to do. And so there's a survey done. Okay, we've got to do this impossible task. Well, we can look at the impossible task that God calls us to do, but we know it's not of our ability, our power, or our resources. It's all about the Lord. But what we do do, we do look and see what we have available. What do you got available? The only thing Moses really had available was a staff, and that was good enough for God. David, he had a slingshot and a couple rocks, but for God, that was good enough. And so here we've got this little boy, this little boy whose mother thought enough of him. I don't know if he told her what he was going to do. She probably said, okay, you can go there, just be back before the streetlights are off. But she made the determination that she was going to make him lunch. And so really this lunch is a lunch of a poor person. Five barley loaves. Barley loaves, for the most part, is animal feed. And so if a person is eating barley, the idea is this is a poor person and two small fish. This is the Sea of Galilee, so it was common for them to eat fish. And so he's got this, this small lunch. And so really what we're looking at here is God wants to do a great work, and mankind's looking at limited resources. But he does look at the resources that he has. It's not that we have nothing. It's just that what we have, we're not sure if that is sufficient. But what makes what they have sufficient? They bring it to Christ. And so my encouragement to you through this miracle is take your limited resources and bring them to Christ. I mean, that, that's his, his method of ministry. And, and even if it's just yourself, look, look how weak and feeble you are when it comes to spiritual matters. Just present yourself to Christ. And Christ is going to multiply whatever it is that you bring to him. And so you've got this, this, this young boy it, and, and again, they're looking at, this is the only food that we, we really see, five barley loaves and two small fish. It was from that that Christ worked this miracle and he fed everybody there with some leftover. And so what is it that you can't do? Usually it's what we don't want to do, but in actuality we have to realize there's nothing that I can't do because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so what do I do then? I just bring my weaknesses, I bring my inabilities, I bring my lack of resources to Christ, and it's him who will make the increase, but it's also him who's going to see these things distributed and see these things work effective, <clears throat> excuse me, for the purpose of ministry. It says in verse 11, And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those who were sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were lift or filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments and remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments. <clears throat> so, again, we look at the disciples. A couple of things that they were going to do, a couple of things that Christ did. First, what did they look at? They, look at? they looked at the path of least resistance. 
we have to be willing to dig in for ministry. They were wanting to send him away. They didn't see where it was possible. As I just mentioned, all things with Christ are possible. They did learn a lesson to work with what they have, but then they also saw that God's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now, don't let this last part get past you. They gathered them up and filled 12 baskets. These baskets are going to be necessary a little bit later on because the apostles are about to go on a little boat trip, which brings us to the next miracle, the fifth miracle, where Jesus walks on the water, verses 15 through 21. It says, therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about, well, let me back up. It says, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat and went over the sea towards Capernaum. And it was already dark and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose and became a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, I believe it's about five miles in width or so, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to him, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land where they were going. Jesus is Lord of the storms. See, the thing about it is, Jesus said, Get into the boat and go to the other side. So when Jesus tells you to go into the boat, and you're obedient, you go into the boat, and you take off to the other side, guess what the end result is going to be? You're going to get to the other side. But the problem is there's going to be storms on the way to test you. Now keep in mind who not all of them, but the majority of these guys were. They were seasoned fishermen who spent the majority of their lives on that sea. And so if there's a storm that scares them to death, this is a pretty big storm. This is a Irma, this is a category five, if you will. And not only that, can you imagine, there's Matthew, the tax collector. He's looking at Peter, the fisherman. If Peter, the fisherman, is worried, he's really going to be frightened. But the thing about it is, is, is that we need to see that Jesus was on that mountain and he was praying. We're not told exactly what he was praying, but the one thing I do know is he was watching over them the whole time. And I would imagine, knowing the dynamic of these men, he was praying for, well, them to learn the lesson. In Mark's account, in chapter 6, verse 48, it says, then he saw them straining at rowing. He saw them there. God knows the strain as you, as you try to row against the storms of your life. He's there with you, and he's watching over you. They were going to go through so many more storms in the future. It's important to know that he is watching. Jesus said in the Great Commission, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, It's not so important that I know that my Lord is everywhere, but it's very important that I know that my Lord is with me everywhere that I am. Then I know that he is watching over the occurrences of my life. And then I need to understand also that he watches over us for the purpose of shepherding us. Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3, David came to that amazing revelation The Lord is not a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And for the person for whom the Lord is his shepherd, he says, I shall not want. 
He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still water. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And then the final lesson of this, um, of this event, of this miracle, it's spoken of in Matthew 14, 27, 32. It's where Peter decided that he was going to go for a little bit of a walk. Lord, if that's you, command me out on the water. And Peter, again, this, I look at that as a tremendous act of faith. A fisherman who realizes the violence and the severity of this storm is willing to get out of the boat and do as his Lord is doing. And so he gets out, and just for a little bit, he walks on the water. Walks on the water. I've walked on the water. Not literally walking on the water, but I've done things beyond my ability just simply because I've gotten out of the boat. I mean, things that just when they were done, it was like, wow, that was the Lord. I brought my limited resources to him. He multiplied them. And as I got out of the boat, I was able to walk on the water. Now, Peter didn't walk on the water very long, but he walked on the water a lot longer than everybody else did because nobody else got out of the boat. And so they could laugh at him later. (laughs) That's why they call you Peter Stone, because you sink like a rock. But not at first. Not at first. I don't know if I would have enough faith to do what Peter did. I have a lot of respect for him because he did do that. In Psalm 94, verse 18, if I say my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. And then the sixth miracle is the healing of the blind man in John chapter 9. I'm not going to read it because of time, but this miracle, it really illustrates those who are blind. Really, it's not even those who are blind. It it illustrates those who aren't blind but refuse to see. Because this story isn't so much about the blind man. Yeah, it is but it's more about the religious leaders who choose to be blind to the obvious things of the Lord. One of my favorite things in this account, you have to back up to the previous chapter. In chapter 8, verse 58, it says, Jesus said to them, Most surely I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so Jesus Christ, that's a deity statement. Verse 59, then they took up stones to throw at them. What are they planning on doing? Well, Jesus just referred to him, equated him with God, so they're going to stone him for blasphemy. But it says, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. But he's not just passing them by to avoid the rocks. He's got purpose in what he's doing. They're willfully blind to who Christ is. If they would honestly look to him and sought him for who he is, they would have recognized. But what does he do? You enter into chapter 9. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Now this man who was blind saw a lot better than those people who could see, but willfully chose to not see. And I have to put myself in the category of those who chose not to see, or at least for me, for a period of my life because I knew there was the conviction of the Holy Spirit convicted me of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit, it told me of who Christ was. I didn't know in detail who Christ was, but the Holy Spirit was calling me to Christ, and I chose to remain willfully blind. And then we have the seventh miracle, which would be the raising of Lazarus to the from the death, or raising Lazarus from death to life. 
And Jesus, he spoke well when he said to Martha in verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And we see that Jesus Christ is the one who is the Lord over the ultimate despair of all of mankind because everybody is headed towards that day of their death. But those who Christ is your Lord, you have life and you have it more abundantly. Again, verses 24 and 25 of John 21, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written by written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So we saw the witness of John the Baptist. We've gone in through and detailed the witness of the works, and then the last witness is this eyewitness of the Apostle John. John was there. John was the one who laid his head on the chest of the Lord. Later on in his epistle, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Speaking of his time personally with Jesus Christ. The life was manifest, and we have seen and bear witness and declared to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was revealed to us. That which we have seen and heard, we now declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. So John is saying, my witness I've told you the things in the gospel. When he gets to the epistle, I was there. I, I heard with my own ears. I've seen with my own eyes. I've gazed upon. I've watched the things that he has done. I've handled with my hands him concerning Jesus Christ or the word of life. And it's amazing. This witness, John, the apostle John, he was, now they were all witnesses, don't get me wrong, but he was the oldest of them. He, he, he lived until, tradition tells us, 100 A.D., until he died of natural causes. But it was throughout his life that it was all about Jesus and the witness for Christ. Now, everybody here should be able to have not this literal testimony, but you should be able to relate to chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 John, that you should have had this personal experience with Jesus Christ. Not that you physically hear him, not that you physically see him, but you have the more sure word of God that cements these things that we have been studying in the Gospel of John deep within our souls. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, that you have shown us these things, and I pray, Father, that we would embrace these things, that we would truly be a people, Father, who are faithful in our witness, because God, just as surely as, as you revealed yourself to the Apostle John, you have revealed yourself to us and to such a degree that there is no doubt. And I just pray, Father, that we would be counted faithful in our witness, that we would take, Lord, just the limited resources that we have, the limited resource that we are, and just come to you, Father, and just pray that you would multiply our witness for your glory. And so, Father, we've got, we live in these times when even in this country, there's so many that are going to despair. There's not a thing a man can do to stop a tornado. There's a a lot of work ahead of those who are trying to clean up after the last one, and I kind of wonder what the next one's going to be like. 
We see, Father, just the, just the division that exists across our country. We see a lot of churches are turning apostate and all of these things. But, Father, you said to watch because these things would happen. And it's because of the truthfulness of your word and the reality of your prophecies coming to pass. But, Father, we believe and we hold these things dear. And as we hold these things dear, I pray, Father, that we would also release them as we have an opportunity into the lives of those whom you bring to us. And so, Father, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for the gospel of John. Lord, I just right now lift up the book of Jeremiah. That's where we're starting next week. And just pray, God, that you would show us great things there as well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? We're, we have a couples retreat coming up. It's in the bulletin. We've had very few sign-ups so far. And so what I'm asking to make a determination if this is something that the Lord does have for us, I'd ask if you're, gonna, if you're planning on going to the couples retreat, that you even if you can't pay right now, at least get signed up so we get an idea of the people who are the amount of people who are planning on coming. I just don't want to spend extra church resources on rooms that we're not using. And so if you're able to do that, I would appreciate it. Again, next week, we're going to be in the book of Jeremiah. Um, we've got ministry coming up. We've got our baptism coming up at the end of the month. You need to sign up for that. But it's also a church picnic that we're going to be doing. So it's double-faceted there. It's a time of celebration of just being part of Calvary Chapel, Ontario. Uh, Martin gave me a little um, a, uh, proposal. We're going to be doing not Hosanna night to the degree that we have in the past, but we're going to be doing some things for the kids uh, come uh, the 31st of October, which I believe is on a Tuesday night. Um, already talked to a, a person, that Mike Adamson, guy who does worship. He does partitions. We're going to do a maze for the kids. We're going to get some jumpers and a few other things. We're going to clear out the sanctuary and give it over to them. And then the next day, we're going to have a work day and repair it all. Um, but no, we just want to take that time and minister to our kids. And what my desire for that night is, isn't just to entertain our kids, but really make it be an outreach. And not just an outreach for the kids, because pretty much everybody here knows a kid somewhere in their life that you'd invite them, because we're going to have an opportunity to give the word and receive Jesus Christ as well. So just keep all that up in prayer. Sunday morning, back in the book of Hebrews. God bless you guys.